This episode is brought to you by True Detective on HBO. The third season of True Detective was hailed by critics as a triumphant return, exquisitely layered and mesmerizing. For your Emmy consideration and outstanding limited series and all other categories. Visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on True Detective. Following the $821 million plus global success of Wonder Woman, filmmaker Patty Jenkins got one of her passion projects off the ground. The story of Fauna Hodel, a woman she met in 2008, who as a young girl was unaware of her true background. Fauna searched for her biological mother in LA during the 1960s, which led her to George Hodel, her grandfather, an LA socialite, abortionist, and suspect in the Black Dahlia murder. Many thought Fauna's story was destined to be a film, but the story was too epic for the big screen, and Jenkins' husband, Sam Sheridan, turned it into a six-episode TNT series, I Am the Night. Jenkins executive produced the series, and she directed the first two episodes of I Am the Night, the pilot, and Phenomenon of Interference. She's here today with us on Crew Call. The first question I wanted to ask you is, and, and, and I know that you had met you had met Fauna and that's how all of this how all of this started to get going but yeah you know when you were working on it as a film yeah what was the hardest what was the hardest part about adapting it I honestly it's interesting the reason that I had a hard time getting it made for as long as I did is mm -hmm. because the second you say black Dahlia it becomes oh well it should be a black Dahlia movie or you know whatever. But the truth is, actually, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what is absolutely bizarre, intriguing, and incredible about this story. That's like the least of it, or it's not the least of it, but it's not the center of the story to me. And so that that was what was so hard is that was pre, when I first was telling people about it and wanting to make it, it was pre-True Detective and people were either doing ongoing series or a movie. And so how to get this size of a story in was impossible. Once this moment came and we finally got to do it, we, we, we finally had the right amount of story really, but still you're leaving out huge chapters of what was so incredible about the story. You have to pick one story and follow kind of that story, even though throughout this story, you know, the more people are getting into it and learning about the real story, the more people are like, what? Tamar lived with Michelle Phillips of the Mamas in the Park. I mean, it's like, it just goes on and on and on. Yes, oh, who wow. was dating Robert Town, who Robert Town heard the story and it influenced Chinatown. And I mean, it's like those details of the story are incredible. So she's my sister. She's she's my... Bingo. Yeah. That was, this was a well-known story. Or, you know, I have no, I can't speak for those guys, but that that's the way I heard it. I heard that Michelle told Robert and Robert, that was what influenced how that, you know, how that got into that story. But a lot of people in Hollywood knew about this real story. It was in the papers all the time. Now, now, Fauna, when she came here from Nevada, because I know that Jay, I know Chris Pine's character, Jay, he's a composite of many different characters. Yeah. Who, how did she navigate her way around here? Like, so, was it with... So well, she like, had was it certain reporters or investigators. Or? So that was a, that's that's really the crux of our story. And that was kind of what what I found so interesting about it was. So she came here. She had her 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 family in South Central and in, in Watts, who she would stay with. But she had the reason that she came here in the first place was because she had gotten through to her mother and her grandfather on the phone. 
and and her her grandfather first. And her grandfather said, "Come, I'd like to see you." I mean, the pilot episode is like very close to exactly how it went down. Of you know, she called. He said, "I'd like to see you. Come to town." She got on a bus to go to town, and he stood her up. So then she's staying with her family in Watts, but he started appearing in these very creepy ways that once she finally saw a picture of him, she realized he'd been following her and stalking her and showing up throughout her life. Oh, so wow. she suddenly recognized that's I, I've seen that man many times before. So he was just was he just keeping tabs? Yeah, he had some sort of weird fixation with her and with her existence. And so he was watching her and controlling her life throughout her life as long as he was alive he was and and so that it was just a that that he he was just an incredibly scary controlling person and and how that manifested in her life is riveting so as i'm as i'm rewatching the episodes and, and and reading up on it again i was curious has did george hodell's family are, are their descendants like finally oh, yeah. know you yeah. had the daughters. You had the yes. daughters on the set, and they were they All were looped the into what you were George doing. George Hodel had a bunch of kids, and so they and they and many many of them have entirely different experiences. Steve Hodel wrote a book about his experience, which is an amazing book. And so, like they, you know, Tamar was the only one who grew up in her generation, but then he had other kids of other generations. So there were there are lots and lots of people who have different stories. Uh, involve you know that center around this but he has he has he has kin living now like, oh yeah have, have you heard have oh you... yeah they all came to our premiere i mean we're we're in touch with as many of them as we can i mean we're not telling it we're not going to be able to tell everybody's story but in a way fauna hodell who this story is about one of the craziest moments of her story that we didn't get to cover in this is that when she did finally get through to her mother she she said i'm looking for my mother, Tamar Hodell, who she'd never met in her life. And the person who answered the phone said, who is this? And she said, this is Fauna. And this person said, my name's, I'm Fauna. And so in the absence of her daughter, she had another child named Fauna. So there's another Fauna Hodell out there who was also at our premiere, who has a, a, a whole other, even more horrific story. And so it's like, there are all of these different, different oh, wow. family members who were affected by the story. What I thought was incredible was I, said to many of them at that premiere, I said, now you can all tell your story and move on. Because it was such a dark, paralyzing sickness that they all shared for so long that everybody was hiding these secrets and no one knew about it. And I sort of, I feel like, I feel like the, the energy is better about it now and they can all just say it and move on and not be afraid. And he had, he had this predilection for like creating for lack of a better word, perverse art. Yeah, yeah. And like, is that, did you find examples of that around? Oh yeah. Like, So he was a uh, thought to be a child prodigy pianist as a child, but he turned out not to be the genius artist that he wanted to be. So he ended up becoming a gynecologist. But there's a sense when you look at his life and how he lived it, that he could never get over it. So he became friends with all of these great artists and he had this crazy house where Man Ray was his best friend and all of these, these great artists were hanging around. Many of the Hollywood, you know, famous actors and famous people of the time would go to the parties at his house. But George never got over the fact that he wasn't one of the great artists. 
So he started, his life started to intersect with the surrealist artist movement. And there's his own work and there's their work and there's all kinds of cross-referencing between the two of them that you start to realize how, how dark and complicated and messed up it was. And, you know, having studied painting and grown up studying art my whole life, I'd always known the surrealist art movement. I never saw and understood that there was this dark underbelly to a lot of it, which, you know, was not necessarily what those artists intended, but certainly when it comes to him and the, and the group that he was hanging around with, it was much darker than I ever realized. And that becomes the key to the Black Dahlia why. I don't want to spoil the ending of the yeah. series, yep. but I'm wondering, was, can you share what one of the most disturbing moments Fauna had, you know, within within reason, can you just- In real life? In real life with George. So in George. real life, and it's in, it's in the book, uh, and it, I mean, it's in the show and the book, her book. But um, yeah, I think the most disturbing moment was that, so he brought her to LA, wanted her to come, and then would not meet her. Yet she was being watched all the time and felt that her phone was tapped. And he was very connected with the law enforcement and and the criminal underbelly because he was performing illegal abortions. So he was completely entrenched in both camps and had all of their secrets. So this man could get anything done he wanted. So living in Watts, uh, Fauna was with her, you know, staying with her family there. And one of her cousins from Sparks called her and said, well, now that I know that you're not related to me, I'm gonna come there and we're gonna get down, basically implying that they're gonna, they're gonna have sex. And he, so he, he, and he said it in sort of a slightly menacing way of like, I'm coming there and you oh, and God. I are gonna be together. Yeah. And on his way here, he ended up dead in a ditch with his own penis shoved down his throat. That kind of thing happened several times to Fauna. And that's a fact, that just happened. That is what happened. Said it on the phone, later that day, he's found in the LA river, like, you know, with his own penis and down his throat. So we do a hint of it in our show. We didn't go as far as we really could, but it's in, it's in our show, that episode is in our show. And um, that kind of thing, she, she, made a, she made an entire movie about her life before that they shot the entire movie and then something happened and suddenly the rights were pulled away weeks before it was finished, never to be done. So that was the other thing is she'd been, everybody had been trying to tell this story for years. And if you did, people came after you. And so that kind of thing happened. That was where I felt like when I, when I made Monster, I felt like this, we had this momentum of a story that wanted to be told that nobody had been able to really tell her story of what happened. People had done doc documentaries about the aftermath, but not her story. And so this had that same thing where I'm like, ooh, this story wants to be told. This truth has been being held in a bottle too tight for too long. So what? when when did you meet her? It was like 10 years ago, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it? it was like 2006, probably. And by that time, she... I. I I would imagine it was it was or maybe more two thousand eight. Yeah, there was more of an ease to get this to get to at least get this story out and off the ground. And uh, it was an ease. It was right. actually super difficult then because okay. that was what I was saying. Everybody either wanted it to be a movie. Everybody that I talked to was like, "Well, it's just a Black Dahlia movie." I said, "Nobody needs another Black Dahlia movie. We've had a bunch of Black Dahlia movies, and that's the least of what's interesting." So it has to be longer than that. It, so I tried. I didn't, you know beat the earth with it, but I did like, we tried and couldn't get it, couldn't get it going. Um, and then, but then it was one of those things. It's like, 
it's interesting. There's something about this story that reminds me of why we do what we do, which is I never continued to think about doing the story, but I kept telling her story. So I would say, get this, listen, get a load of this. And I would tell people constantly about the story and everybody would be like, what? Oh my God. Then they'd start to look it up online and they'd become obsessed. So this story reminds me of like, you know what? Story is huge. We, We sometimes lose sight of that in this industry where we're like, turns out, People want to blah, blah, blah. They want to see people do whatever. A good story is a good story. And when stories suck you in and want to be told, that's what, this is how it all started. This is the story you tell at the campfire. Listen to this. You get a load, you're never going to believe this happened. That's this story. So, so did, did it all come together? Was it because of Wonder Woman? Yeah. That, that all of this just, this, you, yes. you could you could then say, this is what I want to do next. And everyone's like, okay, we're going to do it. Yeah, and it was never quite like that. It wasn't like, this is what I want. I never kind of think about things that way. But I told Chris the story while we were shooting. Chris said, oh my God, that story is incredible. You have to do that. So I started talking about it again, saying, yeah, maybe I should do it again. Now that there are limited series, maybe I should think about it. And then my husband, who's a great writer and I'd wanted to write it before, had this eureka moment where he and I had talked about doing this years ago. And he was like, I always had a problem only being stuck in her point of view because there's so much of the story going on that she would never know. And so suddenly he said, wait, what if we blended all of those different aspects and different characters into one character for, and and asked Chris to play it and you know talk to Chris. So I talked to Chris about it. He said, "Yeah, man, that would be amazing. Let's we'll see what happens." But then, while we were busy on Wonder Woman, Sam just kept breaking the story and doing it, and then he just had this killer arc and great script. So it just became like, "Ooh, I, I would I read it and I really want to do it." And, and I might have a window. We didn't know when Wonder Woman, you know, 84 was gonna happen. And so, you know, I thought, okay, cool. So then we, we sell it and now we're making it, you know? So it was definitely because of Wonder Woman. This episode is brought to you by True Detective on HBO. The third season of True Detective was hailed by critics as a triumphant return, exquisitely layered and mesmerizing. For your Emmy consideration, an outstanding limited series and all other categories. Visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on True Detective. So was Chris was Chris reading the script on oh, yeah. set? Yeah, we started to to develop it and talk about it and meet about it then. I told I told you this at Sundance. He's amazing in it. Yeah. He good. wears it so I mean, he's up there to me, he's up there with, you know, JJ Giddis, and he's up there with the guys, the guys in LA Confidential, Guy Pierce, and and um he just wears that ruggedness of the of the gumshoe so well. And I'm just, and he just goes, like, I'll never forget in the first episode, just, there was a great bit where the, the, the camera, his camera gets smashed yeah. and everything on the beach. How did you know where, I mean, you how did you know he could go that far? I, I know it because I've been working with him. So when you, it, it's always an interesting thing that you get to know these actors and particularly, you know, it's not like everybody has their own complications of who the world thinks they are, but particularly someone like Chris or Gal or Charlize or whatever, who have who have made it in this very specific, leading, beautiful person way. You know, the world doesn't need them to do these other things, but Chris is incredibly interesting and layered and 
super funny and great character actor chops. And so it was, you know, I had no doubt. I know what his skills are. I think he's incredibly skilled and such a great talent and, and, and spirit that I had no question. And I was delighted by it. As this character started to be formed, I was like, oh, I want to see this part. I, I, I feel that way about the actors that I love and have worked with. It's like, I can't wait to see them spin off in this other direction and what's going to come out of them when they do. So I knew he would embrace it. I know, I know that he's always being boxed in by any role. He wants to He's like a, you know, wants to do all kinds of stuff. So there was no question. And then it was like forming that character and watching, watching it develop. I'm so happy you feel He's that so way. He's so gritty. I, I thought away. that, I thought that from the onset, yeah, I'm like, wow, I think, I mean, I, I enjoy him as an actor. I love his Captain Kirk. And I was like. Wow, he's really gone the distance yeah. here. And in, in an organic way. It's not like totally. he's trying to oversell it or anything like that. It's just, it's in him. Yeah, it all came from a really great place. Even the scene you're talking about, it's his first scene in the show. And it just so happens that as we're doing the appropriate thing, it ends up with him wearing his socks on the beach. That he's wearing his socks and his shoes and these short shorts and he's really pale. And, and he was like, oh my, really? This is what we're going to do to me? But it was his own decision. But we were laughing so hard. Like, this is so coming from the right place, but it's just the absolute worst possible combination of clothing. But it was right. It was who he was. Now, before you selected uh, India, was that, was was Fauna a very hard role to cast? Yes. Have you seen like hundreds? Yeah, for, from our initial conversation, that was what TNT, Sarah Aubrey, Sam, and I, and Chris all kept saying is it's all going to come down to who plays Fauna and, and how that, that how how right that is. She was a magical, you never, she was a magical blend that I didn't expect. You know, like I feel like she's so quiet and and yet was known for being on like Nickelodeon shows that are just like so not who she is to me, even though she did a great job, that she was this unusual, like powerful, quiet very interesting, deep spirit, but also very youthful. And I just couldn't stop looking at her or wondering what she was going to do next or wondering how she was going to handle something. And that was it. That was it just, that was, that was it for me. I just was so captivated by her and she's so skilled and wise and great. The other thing I love about the show and I was your color palette. Thank you. Edward, I kept thinking Edward Hopper. Yeah, good. Edward Hopper. Yep. I mean, I mean, I think you recreated Night uh Nighthawks. Yeah. yeah. I, we, I I that's We did a lot of work on exactly that and it was it, that's what was cool was to take the controlling elements of storytelling from Hitchcock, Kubrick, from all of these people where it's like I tell the story. We don't follow the actors. We don't cover whatever's happening. We're telling the story and I will choose what you see when you see it and how we do it. And sometimes it'll just hold in a big wide. Like I, I like that style anyway, but I loved it for the tension that it created here. But then getting into Hopper and to like, you know, William Eggleton and like all of these different, like all of these different great photographers and, you know, and combining them all together was such a, I always like doing that as like finding great artists and then kind of basing it around that. But it was, it was such a, a, a fun thing and we worked very hard at that. So I appreciate it. It was so that. beautiful that, you know, oh, good. even, even like how you would shoot the beach, how the blues would come out, and how the, how the tans would show up, her red. Yeah. 
I, I, I remember. Yeah, the red and the robin's egg blue. Yeah, Matt Jensen and I and, and you know, uh, Julie Berghoff and all of us sat and worked, Verona Meyer, we all worked very carefully together looking at the Eggleston shots and looking at different people's shots and what the color palette, because a lot of those photographs were controlled a Kodachrome was a very controlled palette. You can only get so many colors. So trying to control our palette so that it had every color, but in a very controlled way was something that we all did as a team together, which I think you have to do. If you want there to be a good color palette, you have to really be incredibly organized. The other interesting thing, the the backdrop, and I was wondering if you could expound on this more. It's 1965. Yep. And you could see that there is a there there is a divide in in race relations, but it's not as intense as of course of what's going on in the South. Could you expand? Like, what was Los Angeles like back then? Was it that was I mean, it was an interesting thing, particularly as it related to Sparks, Nevada, where she was from. So Sparks, Nevada had a huge, she grew up in only black culture in Sparks, Nevada. That population was from Mississippi almost entirely. And so, and Alabama, and, you know, but mostly Mississippi. And so it was interesting how race relations were one thing there. They were still a little more organized and slightly in the past, whereas it was just starting to jump off. That wild change was happening in Los Angeles, but it wasn't quite there yet. That was wild to watch because even just in the fashion, they dress like they're in the 50s and they speak like they're from the South in Sparks. But then you come to LA and people are, are growing their hair out and they're wearing short skirts and all these things. And experiencing that through Fauna was so great because you see someone who's been following the rules of what you can and cannot do in black culture confronting, we don't do that here. I'm not straightening my hair. I'm going to live in this other way. Like watching that juxtaposition, which was just really the the metaphor for what was happening worldwide or you know countrywide in the '60s, with like change is starting to come and you can't hold it back. We are moving into the next generation of like what what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, and we're challenging the system. I feel like the parallels to now are also interesting as we're coming up against other changing times and you know we're not going to take it anymore and kind of that moving message moving forward um so weekly i write about box office yeah and i'm always talking about how certain genres have gone the way of of streaming yeah like comedy and, and, and dramas. Yes. But it sounds like going back to what you were t- saying about story, story is king. Story is king. And I'm so happy to get to talk to you about this. I want to challenge that belief system because I'm going to tell you my observation of what happened to those genres. What happened to those genres to me is not that people don't want to see them in theaters. What happened is theaters started carrying only too limited of a palette. And so the, if every box, if every, what I found in the mid 2000s, was that every theater in America was only showing the same five movies. And so having come from New York where you could watch every single independent movie and they were all doing well, suddenly if every Cineplex is only playing five movies, who knows if people still wanna watch dramas there because you're not putting them there anymore. So to me, what happened was not that the audience said, we don't wanna watch comedies or we don't wanna watch drama. It was the other way around. 
cinemas started showing too limited of a thing and they started looking for too big of a box office return that only comes from big IPs. Whereas it's the same thing that happened with the studio system, only making tentpole movies. Now, finally, people are saying, wait a minute, what if we made small movies and large movies? And like, I, I never understood that pocket of time where you're like, the old studio system, you made 20 movies and let them all do their own size. But there was something that happened for a period of time where everybody was looking for a billion dollar phenomenon and nothing else. So what happened? TV came and stole the thunder because the audience is never going to stop watching those things. So I feel like the movie industry and the theaters need to look up because I don't believe that people want to watch this stuff on television. I believe they do want to watch it in the theaters, but nobody's putting it there. And obviously TV streaming is yeah. very good for a longer And that's great. For longer stories. And that's going to be great. Yeah. But there are a lot of movies that fall in the middle where they're big ep epic dramas that it should not go to streaming. They should go to the theater, but the theaters have to diversify their palette of what they're offering and not look for just the same five movies. You can't compete with each other. The um, the last question I'll ask you is, you know, what you could probably you could probably ask the question yourself. Yeah. So um, so th this this morning, uh, my mother in law. She was. She's a huge Wonder Woman. I fan. didn't see that coming. Okay. <laughs> okay. She she's a huge Wonder Woman fan, and she was. She loved the movie, and she was deconstructing the ending. And she she says to, and I said, oh well, she's got another. Patty Jenkins has another movie. She's made a sequel. Yeah. She's like, I want to be able. To, I should be. Yeah. Uh, revealing her age, <laughs> so yeah. I'm gonna hold that back. But I said, she's. You know, it's called Wonder Woman 1984, and she says to me. And this here, here's the question. She says, oh, that's great. 1984, George Orwell. It's probably going to have to do with all themes of George Orwell and everything. And I was like, wow, that's a really good question. And I was thinking, it's probably out there on the internet yeah. <laughs> or something. But Will, is that theme going to, or you can't? I, honestly, I can't say. Yeah. All I can say is, is that 1984 itself is definitely very evocative to what's important in that movie and and resonates with right now, you know? Yes. And so that's yeah. why I, I picked 1984 for a very specific reason. I think it was the it's the it was the pinnacle of the success of the 80s, in my opinion, because it's before the markets, you know, started to get a little more struggling as the 80s went on. And it was like the the the, the top of the top, you know, it was such an incredible time. And, you know, I I feel like there's something about the excess of exactly that period of time, which is so uh, linked up to where we are right now in the world that, that you know, it's set that there, there for a reason. That's all I can say. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, so Thank good you. to talk to you always and read you.